Welcome to Be More, a podcast by Pecan. This is where everyone at an organization can hear different and meaningful perspectives on how we can all thrive in this ever-changing and constantly evolving world of work. I'm your host, Patrick Cornoyer. We just wrapped up season five of Be More, and we had an amazing guest for the last episode of the season. Her name is Bev Kay. And if you have not listened to that episode, please have a listen because I have to say it's probably one of my favorites. Bev, thank you so much for joining the conversation and for wrapping up an amazing season of guests. We decided that as we wrap up 2021, we thought we'd try something a bit different. And this episode is all of our favorite clips from the past five seasons. Now, I just want to caveat that by saying we have enjoyed every single guest that has joined the conversation. Over five seasons, I have learned so much. I have heard so many interesting stories, and hopefully you as the audience have enjoyed hearing such a vast difference in experience, perspective, and thought leadership throughout the HR space. So today, we're going to share with you the first half of some of our favorite clips from the past year and a half on Be More. Back in the first season of Be More, we invited Larissa Conte to come on to the series. And I had always heard about Larissa. She's in the Bay Area. I lived in San Francisco for 10 years before I moved to Europe in 2016. And Larissa always had this presence. And I didn't know her, I had never met her. But every time I heard her name, or somebody talked about their experience with Larissa, it was with this intense experience and this just intense positivity connected to it. So Larissa joined the conversation and we discussed the concept of sensing and aliveness. And in this clip, she turned the conversation a little bit, which I loved. And she put me into the, she started interviewing me and I loved it. And she took me through a bit of a exercise helping me to quickly understand my level of aliveness. And I really enjoyed it. So have a listen to it. And I hope that you are living your full aliveness today. Real-time sensing to move a being at any scale, an individual, a relationship, an organization, society, and even ecology into greater aliveness. Our sensing is what reveals where stuckness is and where aliveness is. So I'm actually curious, Patrick, would you be willing to demonstrate this for our listeners through a little exercise? Absolutely. Okay, great. So uh, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and close your eyes because oftentimes it's easiest for us to tap into our sensing when our visual field is blacked out. So I'm going to give you some easy yes and no questions. And you're going to see you get information from your being. So first, yes or no question. And say it out loud when you know this, please. Are you thirsty at all right now? 
Yes or no? No. Are you hungry at all right now? Yes or no? Yes. And then we'll take that line of question and we'll dig into it a little more. If there's anything that you can eat right now that would bring you the most aliveness, what would it be? Mm, a mango. Wonderful. And then we'll go, we can get even more complex information. So are you currently operating at your greatest aliveness, 100% aliveness, the most aliveness you've ever had? Or are you somewhere less than that? I would say uh, somewhere less than that. Great. On a scale of zero to 100, where would you put yourself in terms of your aliveness in this moment? Maybe 75, 80. Great. So we have room to bring in more aliveness. That's very valuable information. What is one thing you could do in your personal life in the next 24 hours that could get you closer to 100? I would say probably having a meaningful and personal conversation with my sister. I haven't talked with her in a couple of weeks, so I could use picking up the phone and giving her a call tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you. And then last question is, what is one thing you could do in your work life to get you closer to 100% aliveness in the next 24 hours? Mm -hmm. I would say maybe plan out my month of September because I feel a list of many, <laughs> many deliverables that have to happen in September and being able to put those all down, organize them, work with my team to get those outlined quite well, I think would bring me some excitement and energy for the month ahead. Mm. Thank you so much. That's the end of the exercise. That's great. So as you'll see, you just got a lot of information in a very short amount of time of how to bring more aliveness into your being. And those weren't ideas mm -hmm. that was perceived by your sensing. And the reason why I care so much about sensing is that I've found in my journey as a leadership coach, a consultant, but also as a human who went on a nine-year journey of healing from a near-fatal accident, that sensing is what moves us into our greater aliveness and our greater expression. One of my favorite experiences, both in the workplace and just in my personal life, has been the experience of mentoring, either being mentored by some really amazing people throughout my life or providing mentorship to colleagues. We dedicated an entire season of Be More to the concept of mentorship because it's quite complex. There are many different types of mentorship and also different perspectives on effective mentorship. So this clip is with Lori Rudiman, and Lori is a forward thinker when it comes to mentoring and mentorship. Lori shares with us how she learned to be a effective and quite frankly, I'm sure really great mentor and her ideas on what mentoring really means and how to effectively think about mentorship from her perspective. I learned to be a mentor by being mentored. So I think that's really important to say, you know, you just can't mentor somebody without having been on the other side of the experience as well. And so my mentor is a businessman by the name of Jesse Itzler. 
and I've been working with him for a few years, amazing human being, uh, intrepid entrepreneur, and someone who pushes himself physically, emotionally, financially, and really gets the best out of all experiences. And he's not just one thing. He's a dad. He's a husband. He's a partner. He's a businessman. He's living a multifaceted life. And so in working with him, I learned that that's who I want to be. So when someone approaches me to mentor them, it's helpful that I know who I am and what I stand for and what I don't stand for, what I believe in and what I absolutely cannot offer. And I only learned that through my experiences working with Jesse Itzler. So I think that's really important. You need to know who you are before you offer yourself up as a mentor. And that comes through deep interpersonal development work. When I work with someone as a mentor, though, I have to be real careful because I am a paid coach. And paid coaching is where you look at specific goals, you work on plans, you're really involved in the weeds. And mentorship is more philosophical, in my opinion. It's more listening, understanding, demonstrating empathy, clearing a path for someone to find their own way. But coaching is so much more active. Mentoring is so much more, I think, deep and personal and quiet. And as a mentor, that is my challenge to make sure that I'm not going one way or the other, depending on the relationship that I have with the person. This next clip is quite a personal one for me. Last year, I had the opportunity to have Brady Pyle join the conversation for Be More. Brady leads the people experience at NASA. And those of you who are listening in North America, you'll know NASA is a very, very well-known and well-respected organization. And for me, an organization that gave me so much hope and excitement when I was a kid. I wanted to go to space camp so bad, and I imagined a future because of what NASA was representing. And for those of you listening, I'm 43 years old, so I was uh, growing up in the 80s, and it was just a very poignant moment for me in my career to be able to interview someone who has had such an impressive career at NASA. And in this clip, Brady talks about the concept of mission-first people always at NASA. They want to be doing the work that they're doing. And then all of a sudden, they are put into a position out of their control, which is to all of a sudden have to be working remote for their own safety, other people's safety and move into a detached workforce and still be able to have that same passion, connection, inspiration, hope, but all of a sudden are doing it, doing their work from their bedrooms or their offices or their kitchen tables. How did that transpire over the past couple of months? And was that hard to manage as an organization? That's a great question, Patrick. I would describe up until 2020, our HR mission, our HR focus has always been mission first, people always. So a focus on people, but a priority on the mission and supporting the mission. 
And what we found as, as we went into March and April is our agency leadership had to step back and say, okay, there are things that we are going to be unable to do. We're going to be unable to make some progress on certain aspects of the mission. And so we really, uh, we actually intentionally shifted our HR mission over the course of the last several months to a people first mission always focus. And so really working with the agency leadership on protecting the people. So we have about 95% of our workforce at the beginning was in a telework situation. Now, fortunately for us, even prior to March, we had some people who worked remotely and who did telework. So we, we had some infrastructure, we had some ways of doing that, and we had tested it out. But obviously, the scale uh, to which that we moved this was, was significant. And we worked our way through kind of this new way of working. Agency leadership shifted mission milestones to enable people to work from home. The challenges we faced, I would say, because there is such that connection to mission and commitment to the organization, is the biggest challenge we faced is burnout. Employees are not getting those natural breaks where you leave the office and go home, where you step away from your your computer and, and move away. People are working all the time. People are not taking leave. We have reduction in, in holidays or taking time off, vacation time off of about a third over the last six months. So we're really encouraging as we head into Thanksgiving and Christmas time for folks to, to take time away, even though they may not be able to vacation with their families like they normally do at this time of year. Elena Valentine is up next. And this conversation still gives me goosebumps when I listen to it. Elena and I discuss the idea of vulnerability in the workplace and how for so many years, vulnerability was seen as a weakness and not as a pure human emotion and not as quite frankly, a strength. I truly feel that vulnerability and transparency, but more specifically, vulnerability is a true strength. And Elena and I made an incredible connection in this conversation. And in this clip, you get to hear from her about her perspectives on how the perception of vulnerability is changing in such a positive way for the future. We have pushed economies and whole companies where things like making mistakes and acknowledging them and being vulnerable and taking failure bows has been seen as a weakness and not as a pure, true human emotion. And as a result, we now are coming up against a generation where that will no longer stand, where vulnerable leaders will be the ones to change this world. And vulnerable leaders will be the ones to change our companies. Vulnerable leaders will be the ones to foster storytelling cultures because vulnerable leaders will be the ones to tell their stories first. And that's what needs to happen is that it's these leaders, it's these managers, 
who are feeling safe enough to share their story so that in turn, their employees can share theirs to increase those level of connections. The last thing I will say to this point is that when we also think about these companies, the challenges that we have faced from technology, but also this fear-based vulnerability has been that we can only have one story of pecan or these select stories of pecan is opposed to recognizing that it is a plethora of stories and a plethora of narratives that make up our companies. And we are now at the level of technology that we have to make investments in ensuring that everyone gets to be a part of that mosaic. And how dare we not increase those kinds of opportunities to increase these engagements with our companies. Last year, I had the opportunity to work with Lily Zeng. And through the experience of working with Lily, I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about the workplace, about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all really critical topics that obviously we have all been talking about quite a bit for many years, but have seen more action being taken in these areas over the past 12 to 18 months. And Lily was one of the first guests that we had on Be More. And in this conversation, Lily explains the concept of accountability and action and the fact that to truly take accountability for actions, it is not just a forward motion. It is also a retroactive motion. Psychological safety is a group level belief that it is safe to share dissenting opinions. It is safe to share things that might be conflicting or hard for people to hear and that people who do so are not going to be punished for sharing their views. Now, psychological safety is the underpinning of any effective feedback and conflict resolution process within companies. This gets to what you were asking, Patrick, which is that if people don't have the sense of psychological safety, they're not going to feel comfortable reporting. They're not going to feel comfortable sharing feedback. They're not going to feel comfortable saying, um, hey, my manager said something really hurtful the other day because they're just going to be scared. Now, the things that hurt psychological safety are retaliation, are toxic cultures, are cultures where people aren't listened to, are hierarchies that aren't agreed to. All of these things depress psychological safety. And so when we talk about how it is we can actually create this environment where people can share their feedback, where people can share their opinions, where people can perhaps trust that leaders are going to take it well, you need to address all of these things. And when we talk to leaders, getting back to your first first question, which is how can leaders actually step up and take accountability for things? This is a phrase that I hear a lot. A lot of leaders go like, okay, it's time for us to be accountable for our actions. And I'm like, great. That's not just something that you do going forward. That's something you have to do retroactively. Because I guarantee you, every leader that makes that promise has not been accountable in the past. 
the entire reason why leaders have to make that promise is because they haven't been accountable in the past and they're trying to change their actions. And so you can't just wipe the slate clean. This is one of the big takeaways that I want folks to get from this conversation. You can't just wipe the slate clean when you announce that you're going forward with new work, whether that's diversity and inclusion, whether that's reducing sexual assault, whether that's, you know, creating an equitable workplace. You can't wipe the slate clean. You have to go back and say, we need to make things right. We need to rebuild trust. We need to talk to employees. We need to apologize. We need to, I don't know, pay people what they're worth. We need to help people that have been spurned by our conflict resolution system actually like get some resolution to things. That is all essential pre-work to doing any future-focused work. So along those lines, trust is the core of what we've been talking about for the first part of this conversation. Trust and integrity have been married together forever, right? This concept, or at least the concept of having a high level of trust is aligned with having a high level of integrity. Okay, so this next clip is one that definitely stands out to me because I was having a conversation with Chris Dyer and Chris is a very dynamic guy. And we were talking about his perspective on meetings and his insights on how he brings and his team and how he's built this concept of meetings around cockroach items and tiger items and the idea of one-on-one -on -one meetings and the ineffectiveness of one-on-one -on -one meetings. And it was a really thought-provoking conversation for me because I was thinking to myself, I have a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and I think they're super effective. But his perspective on it made me think. And I have to say, Chris, if you're listening to this episode, I did change my cadence and perspective on one-on-one -on -one meetings. So have a listen to this clip. I think you'll find it interesting. If anybody hears anything, it's create the system and train the people to help you manage the system, right? And then they will run with their good ideas. The managers will do great things inside of that, you know, what you've created. But if you don't build the freeways and the on-ramps and the off-ramps and you don't build the streets and things like that, people can't move. They can't do the things they need to do, right? And you're leaving them out in the in the desert to drive a car instead of driving it on a nice clean highway, right? So those are the things I think that's where leaders need to spend their time is working on that part of it and less in the micro stuff. Well, why did someone make that mistake? And then, you know, blowing that little tiny thing up, that cockroach type thing, turning a cockroach issue into a tiger issue. We, that's what we want to avoid. So as we're talking about this, you had mentioned at the start of the conversation around meetings that you said you have very few, if any, one-on-one -on -one meetings. And I struggle a bit with the concept of that because I think a struggle area that I see is how do you provide the opportunity for people to have that coaching or feedback or that focused time with somebody in your organization for development, mentoring, or all of the things that may be more of a one-on-one -on -one, or cl maybe classically a one-on-one -on -one interaction within a workplace? So there's a couple of things there. I mean, I do, so I have my 
I call it the tiger's den. Those are my, my senior team, right? So the people that are directly reporting to me, there's four of them. I have a 15 minute open spot on my calendar for them on Mondays if they want it. I have my Zoom on, it's the same Zoom room for all of them. They have a 15 minute slot and they come into there to say, hey, what are they working on this week? And what are their obstacles? Where do they need my help? Right. If they need my sword to come in and help them clear the way, you know, my machete, for, you know, I can do that and we can talk. Most of our development, though, is done as a group. So we have our Tiger Den meeting once a week. And once a month, we do a, like an all day strategic session. And in that strategic session, we're talking about big things and where we're trying to go. But we also, each person has to go around and do a presentation on what's happening in their department, right? Inside of the organization for them. And they get feedback and they get pushback and they get questions and they get all of that from the entire senior team. So it is all of our jobs to help develop that person together to help the organization. It is not my job only to sit and coach you, right? And you're only getting the value of my opinions and my coaching or my experiences. And that was Be More, a podcast by Pecan. Be sure to search for Be More in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future conversations. On behalf of the team here at Pecan, thanks for listening.